0: Please stay standing for today's scripture, which comes from 1 Corinthians ten twenty-three through 11, 1. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. For since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man." For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be kept in submission, as the law also says. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated.
1: <laughs> I do not feel well. <laughs> this morning I woke up and I thought, this is embarrassing. No, really, I mean, uh, as she's reading, I hope you didn't, I hope you caught it, right? A woman reading the scripture saying that women should not speak in church. So what does this mean? What's going on? Right? Welcome to church. Okay. I don't know if you've—so first of all, let me, let me place you, especially if you're a guest or a visitor, why in the world would we choose this passage to preach on? Well, we didn't really choose it. We, primarily, we didn't choose, choose it. We chose to walk through 1 Corinthians, and this is in 1 Corinthians. So we're in a series in that book. And in fact, we, we think that it's a, the best practice ordinarily to just, for the most part, pick a book and just walk through it, right? And so this fall, we're going to be in the Old Testament. So— That's our practice here, and this is how we come to this passage. Now, you notice that the the next passage is from chapter 14, that that last part about, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. But where we are is actually chapter 11. I just, that's relevant, so I wanted to bring that last portion into today. So listen, I don't, I, I, let me make you, I can only make you one promise, and that is I will not satisfy everyone this morning. Okay. I'm not going to be able to answer all the questions. And in fact, not a single commentator, given years to write on this, even can answer all of their own questions. Okay. So that I'm sure of. But we are going to, to try our best to be clear and to honor the passage and be led by the Spirit. Okay. So first of all, I want to say, if you haven't seen the new Aladdin, the live action movie, uh, maybe you should consider it. It's family worship. I know there's children now right in the front row. Wow, he's talking about Aladdin. So, so I'm a fan of Aladdin. Uh, I, it was one of my favorite Disney movies growing up, so I was excited when they came out with the live-action version. So I went, and th- they did a couple of things in the live-action version. First of all, they gave some more context to the villain, to Jafar. They, they, they gave, there's some more political intrigue. There's a little bit of background. You sort of understand his story a little bit, and there's more character depth. You, you understand his motives, and I thought that was actually very helpful. They're only implied in the cartoon version. Of Disney back 20 some years ago or so. The other thing they did is they added a song, a new song, like they're doing in some of these live action, live action shows. And, and Princess Jasmine sings this song. And the, the song title is called Speechless. And I'm going to read you a few of the lyrics. But before I do, I want to give you some context. Even in the cartoon, if you've seen it, Jasmine inserts herself in the context of the king, her father, and his uh, elders or his his Council making decisions. And she's, she's very comfortable in doing this. Well, they really play that up in this version of the movie. And at one point, Jafar sees her in a hallway and it's just them. And, and he walks up to her and he says this, life will be kinder for you, princess, when you accept these traditions and understand it is better for you to be seen and not heard. Okay. And in that context, later, when he starts the coup and with the genie and so on, it, she goes into the song, okay, the full length version of this song. And, and I want to read you just part of a verse and a chorus. All right. She says, I won't be silenced. You can't keep me quiet. I will not tremble when you try it. All I know is I won't go speechless because I'll breathe when they try to suffocate me. Don't you, under, don't you underestimate me because I know that I won't go speechless. Written in stone, every rule, every word, centuries old and unbending. Stay in your place, better seen and not heard. Well, now that story is ending. All I know is I won't go speechless. Is this what Paul is saying? Is Paul pulling all women aside and saying, Life will go kinder for you, women and wives, when you learn you're better to be seen and not heard. Is that what he's saying? I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's saying. You know, I think each cultural moment when they interact with the Bible has certain challenging passages. But even now, different passages are different... Uh, have different levels of difficulty depending on where you live, what part of the world you live in, what your background is. But for us, this particular passage is at a cultural fever pitch, right? And and it ought to be, right? I mean, so even recently in the news, I I know for decades, for generations, equal pay for women and men has been a conversation. Uh, Trying to do away with many or any really distinctions between man and woman. Right, and right now, I don't I haven't followed the details, but a couple of weeks ago I was read a story about the the US women's soccer team versus the US men's soccer team and the difference in pay. Now, I I don't even have an opinion on that except to say that it's getting lots of airtime, right? And so we're familiar with these, so when we come to this passage, our ears perk up in a way that in some parts of the world, even today, ears ought not perk up or don't perk up, okay? So I do want to say In our passage today, Paul is distinguishing between men and women. He is saying there is a God-given, not not only a cultural, but a God-given distinction between the role of men and women in the world and in life. But we need to understand why, and we need to understand the context in which he's speaking. Okay, those two things are very, very important. In our passage today, Paul is distinguishing between men and women, but why? And in what context is he speaking? Now, the title of this whole series is Family Matters. It's sort of a double entendre. What it means is family matters. That is the local church family matters. But also Paul is dealing with family matters in this letter. Okay. So we need to understand that this is an in-house conversation and particularly it's issues in Corinth that are arising that's causing Paul to write this letter. He's writing this letter not to you and me. We've said this before. He's writing this letter to Corinth, a very particular church in the first century. However, this letter is for you and me because we are a part of God's family. Do you see the difference? So first we have to understand what he's writing to, and then we can understand how it applies to us. So what I'm actually going to do is going to take this whole opportunity to talk about at the end, how we deal in general with difficult passages. All right. So I actually, I have three points, but I want to deal with the whole passage all in my first point. So it is going to be the longest point. I want to deal with the whole passage in the first point. Then the second point is very short. And then I have one more point. And in that third and final point, what I want to do is talk about what are principles of how we can approach and deal with difficult passages in the Bible. Okay. So first of all, what is Paul's point in this passage? What is his point? If you look in verse two with me, he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I deliver them to you. He says now, because this is a transition. He's in verse 11, chapter 11 through 14, he's going to be dealing with issues in public worship. Okay, so next week he's going to talk about communion and then he's going to talk about spiritual gifts as they're exercised in public worship. And then he's going to talk about spiritual gifts again, even more directly applied in public worship in chapter 14. All right, so we're in a section now where Paul's talking about public worship and how the church uses their gifts to build one another up in public worship. All right, that's the context. That's where he's making that transition. And he says in verse two, "'I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions.'" Now, from here on out, it it either sounds like he's being um, sarcastic, right? He's saying, I commend you for listening. Now, backhanded comment. You're actually not listening, and I need to correct you. That's what some commentators wonder. I actually think what's happening is, for the most part, in their correspondence, the Corinthians have been doing what Paul has asked them to do slowly but surely, but he wants them to understand why he's asked them to do these certain things. And so I think he's expanding and unpacking his remarks from, uh, starting in chapter three. Okay, so in chapter three, he says, I want you to understand, that's where I get that, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So two preliminary points. I've already said it. This is about public worship, not life in general. Do you hear that? Everything Paul is saying is about public worship, the church gathered, not life in general. There are implications to life in general, but that's not primarily in his focus here, okay? He deals with those issues and other places. Second, he's not talking about men and women, generally speaking. He's talking about husbands and wives. That's what the passage says, wife and husband. Now, if you have some translations, do translate this woman, Okay. But even then, the context almost certainly leads us to know that they're talking about husbands and wives. The Greek word for wife and woman is the same word. Context is what tells us what it is. All right. So I think the ESV is correct in translating this Greek word for woman in this context as wife. Okay. So it's not men and women in general. It's husbands and wives. So with those preliminary comments, what's going on? the word head here, every man who prays or prophesies with his, or sorry, verse 3, I skipped it. The head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. There are a few different ways that head is used. The word head is used. One could be source, one could be authority, and the other is the physical head, like the thing you wear a hat on, okay? And All of those are probably at play, actually, in what Paul is talking about. But he keeps switching back and forth without actually telling us explicitly what he's doing. If you've been with us in 1 Corinthians, we know a few different things. As Paul is answering their questions that he's asking them, in his answers, he's always first committed to honoring God by applying the principles of Scripture to their situation— he also is always concerned that believers show due regard for each other in their worship times together and in the body of Christ. He's always trying to make sure that people are loving one another, that they're not taking their rights as more important than the rights of others, that they're not exercising their gifts over and against the gifts of others. And instead of building up the church, tearing down the church and so on. We've seen that a lot. What we're going to see even more so in these three chapters is the third thing that Paul is always concerned about. And Paul is always concerned with the testimony of the Corinthian worship meetings in the, in the sight of unbelievers. Okay, he's always aware that these gatherings are public. And so he expects there are unbelievers there. And he wants people to be able to understand what's going on and not be unduly put off. And that's going to become more clear over the next weeks. Okay, especially in chapter 14. But our passage today, he does all those three things. Okay, and, and he answers the question... Why should women cover their heads in worship? Which I know is your question, right? Why should women cover their heads in worship? He answers that question under those three principles of the glory of God, the honoring of relationships, and the, the witness of the um, before the unbelieving world. He, he gives twofold answer, okay? Again, I know I'm talking fast. Why should women cover their heads in worship? That's the question. Twofold answer, okay? First, he says, because it's true to God's design and it honors the relationship of husbands and wives in worship. Okay. I get this from chapter three. I mean, verse three, particularly, and 11 and 12. But verse three, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. What he's probably talking about is the head in terms of authority. Okay. In a husband, in a marriage, the husband has authority over his wife. It's in Ephesians 5, it's in Genesis, it's it's all over the place, okay? So he's picking up on a very non-controversial biblical understanding of husbands and wife. But as he unpacks it in other places, what does that authority mean? Well, it means that the husband is to love and sacrifice themselves in protection and service to their wife. Okay, so it's a sacrificial giving of oneself, and a protection, and an oversight. And then the wife is to respond to that with love and respect for her husband. If you've ever been to a wedding, these are the vows that that are taken. Any wedding I've given, I say these almost exact same words, and people take these vows, both men and women. Okay? And so what happens here is that Paul is mainly interested. He's mainly interested in this passage on the fact that there are Corinthian wives who are dishonoring their husbands by the way they're speaking and by the way they're dressing in corporate worship. Okay, so that's what's happening. Bottom line, all right? And how do we know this? Well, if you look in verse three, how do we know that it's about honor and dishonor? Read with me here in verse four. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Okay, so if a man prays in this way, he dishonors his head, which is Christ, his authority. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, dishonors her husband, okay? And unless anyone gets carried away, in verse 11, after all the things that might be confusing, he says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman and all things are from God. So what he wants us to make sure, right, is that men and women are equal in value and dignity. Okay, so that's clear. The difference is the the way in which God has designed them to function in relationship, particularly in marriage. There's a different relationship that they have to one another. Okay, we're going to come to that in just a second. But I want to make it clear that this teaching that Paul has is not related merely to culture. Okay? He actually roots it in creation. That's what I mean by God's design. Okay? And so he appeals to the order of creation as to why husbands and wives are to relate to each other in this way. Okay? Look in verse 11 and 12. So I already read 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, the woman is not independent of man, Actually, hold on. I'm, I'm confusing myself. Let, let's not go there for yet, okay? All right. So first thing I said was when Paul talks about head, he means authority. It seems that the context in Corinthians was that women, wives, were speaking and dressing in public worship in a way that dishonored their husbands. Okay? That, that therefore not only dishonored their husbands, but shamed them. And he says that we know that this ought not to happen because the wives ought to honor their husbands as their authority, and that men should love their wives as Christ loves them. Do you see this flow so far? Okay, so it is rooted in creation, but then he also makes this interesting argument that it's not only rooted creation, but it also should be reflected with cultural norms. Okay, so it reflects cultural norms in the decency of their day. Look in five through seven. He says every wife who prophesies, prays, or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. Listen, in this day and age, a married woman who uncovered her head in public most likely would have, been brought to sh- would have brought shame on her husband. And the reason is, is because if a woman in public worship would have not had her head covered. By the way, we don't know what exactly that means. Okay, we don't know if it's her long hair, if her hair should be up. We don't know if she's wearing a shawl or something on her head. All we know is that they knew what he was talking about. Okay, that's what we know. Either way, what they knew he was talking about, they were ignoring. And they didn't care they were shaming their husbands. Do you see see what's going on? And Paul is speaking directly to that. So whatever it was, though, it was culturally relevant. Right now, women who don't have their head covered and they're sitting next to their husband, right? You're not dishonoring your husband by not wearing something on your head or having shorter hair. Okay, because in our culture, that's not what it, it connotates. But it is possible, is it not, that you could do other things in public worship that would bring shame upon your husband that would dishonor your husband. So it's still possible, but it's the, the cultural artifacts that are different. Okay. But the principle, his point is still the same. So again, in that culture, if a wife in public was, was not doing what Paul was telling her to do, it was bringing shame on her husband. Okay. Okay. Now, it could have been because when a a married woman didn't have whatever was going on in covering her hair, it could mean that she was available, if you know what I mean. She was available or that she wasn't married. And if a woman who has acted outside of her covenant relationship physically with a man was caught, she'd have to shave her head. And therefore she would walk around and that would bring shame on her and her husband. And Paul's saying, the actions that you're doing in church are so shameful, they're as if that were, that happened. Okay? So here's the, that's a little bit more of the context. Another reason why we know that this is culturally conditioned, some of it, okay, is that he says that if men pray or prophesy with their head covered, that they're bringing shame upon their head. But in Exodus chapter 28, Aaron, the high priest, is commanded by God to wear a turban when ministering. Okay. And if he's wearing a turban on his head when ministering, it means he's praying and prophesying and his head is covered. We know that throughout church history, uh, uh, pastors and bishops and so on wear ornamental sort of hats on their head. Right. The whole time. All right. And so we know that in general, he's not saying a man covering his head or a woman wearing a shawl. The, The point is this, is that each the man and the woman, particularly in this instance in public worship, are to honor their God-given roles and seek to respect and honor the relationship. And that was not happening. And that's what Paul's speaking to. Okay? Paul's teaching was in response to a particular instance in 1 Corinthians where the women were bringing shame upon themselves in public worship and their husbands. And he's speaking to that. Okay? Super clear, right? Just to let you behind the curtain a little bit here. I, this is the, uh, I think this is true. I I'm almost, I can't think of another instance where this uh, would not be true. I've never studied and preached a passage yet. This is the, this is the one where commentators disagree with each other so much. But it's not contentious. Sometimes it's contentious, but it's just confused. Everyone's just a little confused. And the reason is, is because Paul is responding to a letter that we don't have. And that's okay that we don't have it. But the Corinthians, he was speaking. It's like we're listening to one side of a telephone call. We're not in the other room, but we're trying to put together exactly what's happening. And we get the gist of the conversation, especially when we put it in context of the other letters that Paul wrote. But nevertheless, this is a bit confusing. Okay? So before I move on to general principles, I I do want to speak to what's happening in the end where he tells women to not talk in church. Wives particularly. All right? So this was in our passage. Uh, If you look here in verse 33, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. The women should keep silent in the churches obvious question. In the first part, the question was, what does it mean, head coverings, and all of that? This one is, does he mean not speak at all? or women to keep completely silent? That is to say, not say a word. I, I think the answer to that is no, for two reasons from the passage, okay? The first reason is we didn't read verse, uh, verse 28 in chapter 14. We just picked up in verse 33. But there's some whole business about speaking in tongues there. And aren't you glad we didn't take that on today in this sermon yet? But there's this whole business there. And of course, men and women most likely, but definitely some men were speaking in tongues. And Paul's giving them direction on what, if they are to do that, what that has to mean in Corinth, okay? And one of the things he tells them is that if there is no interpreter, you must keep silent. Same word. It's the same word in Greek. He means keep silent on that issue, okay? If there's no interpreter, shut your mouth, Stop. You're confusing everyone. You're bringing confusion into corporate worship. You're inserting yourself and becoming a distraction. So don't. He says that in verse 28 about those who are speaking in tongues, men and women, right? Probably, presumably, men and women. But he's saying the same thing. So what does he mean in this instance to shut your mouth, to remain silent? Okay? Uh, I don't think it's it's simply to stop talking. And this brings me to the second reason. In verse 5, which we read, look with me but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her husband. He doesn't say every wife who prays and prophesies dishonors her husband. He says every wife who prays and prophesies in corporate worship without her head covered, whatever that means, okay, dishonors her husband. So what? What he's saying, I think, is that there were women who were praying and prophesying in public worship. Just like we have now, there are women who pray, women who read scripture. Hannah this morning read scripture, which is an extension in some way of proclamation. It just is. It's not authoritative from her, right? The elders oversee the whole order of service. I am presiding over the service as an elder, okay? But Hannah read the scripture. She also led us in prayer. So there is a way in which somehow, women do and can in modern instances and certainly in 1 Corinthians, in this church, we're exercising some way of public prayer and some word-based thing, okay? We don't know exactly what it was. But the key is this, is that they can do that provided they're dressed modestly, whatever that means again with their head thing covered, okay? They dress modestly and that they respect their husband, They can't challenge his authority in the way that they do these things in corporate worship. And so it seems, okay, it's possible that wives were asking disruptive or challenging questions and interpreting in and interrupting, sorry, the congregational gathering. And they were doing it in a way that dishonored their husbands. That they were inserting themselves and disrupting everything and therefore bringing shame on their husbands. Okay, it seems that that's possible. And that a wife's public disagreement with her husband in the ancient world would be viewed as humiliating and would dishonor him, okay? Now, such a reading does not lead to the conclusion that all women were asking questions in such a way, but some were, and Paul is speaking to them. If you guys could only see your faces right now. I do not think this is an absolute prohibition. It doesn't make sense in chapter 11. It doesn't make sense in Acts chapter 2. It doesn't make sense in Acts chapter 21. Paul is likely forbidding wives to speak up both in interrupting ways, and here's the last way, in judging and authoritative ways. Okay? And this is what I mean by that. Most likely there would have been some type of sermon preached, and then there would have been an interaction with other pastors in application of that sermon and women were inserting themselves and contradicting both the pastors and therefore bringing shame on their husband, okay? That's plausible. We don't know exactly what was happening, all right? Okay. Paul's point is this. We all must honor our relationships in marriage, husband and wife. In Corinth, there were ways in public worship that wives were shaming their hu- bringing shame upon their husbands by both being disruptive in public worship, not all wives, some wives, okay? Bring, and by both how they operated in speech and the ways in which they dressed. Okay? That's Paul's point. Now, I want to read a quote, and then I have four minutes for the, ne- the next two points. Okay? All right, here's a quote from a commentator I found helpful. The Bible teaches that men and women are equal but not interchangeable. They are both equal with respect to dignity and worth and are both equally made in the image and likeness of God. They are both equally leaders. They share the dominion mandate given back in Genesis 1. However, the roles they have in executing leadership in this instance in public worship are best understood in a complementary way. Okay, okay. so that is the summary statement uh, for me of what Paul's point is. Now, second point why is this a problem to us? Why were every one of us leaning in? Why were you all afraid for me in that moment? Why? Couple reasons. In many ways, in our culture, passages like this make us think the Bible has become a liability. It's embarrassing, it's shameful. It has to be muted, and it has to be marginalized. I was not joking when I said, I, inside, when I come to passages like this, my knee-jerk reaction is embarrassment. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that I'm immune to that, okay? I think to myself all types of things when I come to passages like this. I'm confused, I'm angry. That's my knee-jerk reaction. Because I've been formed and shaped, with certain assumptions and expectations by the culture around me, okay? So first of all, the reason we have a problem is because we oftentimes think the Bible has become a liability because we elevate our culture and its hermeneutics, the way it views the world and life above scripture and its context, okay? I think another reason it's become a problem is because we think that the Bible should be intuitive, in other words, if it's important, which the Bible is, it should be intuitive. And it's not, if it's not, something's wrong with it. This is the definition of intuitive by Webster. Okay? Uh, something is intuitive when it is understood or used based on what one feels to be true, even without conscious reasoning. Okay? And our unconscious reasoning oftentimes makes us come to this passage and be confused. And we think that our intuition should be able to unpack these types of things for us. But it it, it just can't. This is why people go to seminary. This is why people study the Bible. And this is why we have scholars, right? Because in passages like this, things aren't always equally clear. Now, those are really for my Christian friends. For those of you who aren't Christians or are wrestling with, you may even be a Christian, but you're wrestling with the authority of the Bible. Does the Bible actually have the highest authority in my life? What I want to offer to you is that even if you don't think the Bible does, something does have ultimate authority in your life. And if it's you and your opinions and your intuition, it's not very steady. Let me ask you this question. Is there anything, anything of substance that you believed and thought 10 years ago that's different now? Has your mind on parenting or politics or you name it changed at all in the last five years, 10 years? I'm gonna say yes, of course it has. And therefore, if you have your own opinion and reasoning as your highest authority, you do not have a very sturdy authority. So what is your authority? So our problems are, are those three. Our problem with authority, our problem with a belief that says, if it's important, it should be intuitive to me. And also this growing sense that the Bible is a liability to us in the modern world. That's our problem. But l- let me now give you some principles in closing. I'm going to keep it simple, but here's some principles for difficult passages. Okay, I tried to exercise some of these principles in that first 25 minutes of dealing with that very challenging passage. Okay, first, you have to get specific when you come to challenging passages or when you're confronted by people who are challenging the Bible's authority. Okay, many challenges to the Bible and Christianity thrive on vague generalities. All right. All right. They sound very tweetable, but they're very general. So when you yourself have doubts, when you yourself question the authority of the Bible, when it speaks against or to your sexuality or the way you spend your money or the way you spend your time, right there, let me just tell you this, okay? There have been years where I and many of you have looked at your year-end giving statement at the amount of money and thought, oh, that hurts. I really could have used that money. Has that ever happened to you? I hope it's happened to you. It's happened to me. Okay. But then why don't I change it the next year? Why don't I give less money the next year? Because I believe that the Bible tells me that I ought to be generous. That it's good for me and it glorifies God. And that God gives me all things in order to share and love my neighbor. And that I have more than I need to help those who don't. And so on, right? So the Bible challenges you. It challenges me. So get specific when it challenges you or when you're being challenged by others. For another example, some people say that science contradicts the Bible or that the Bible is full of contradictions or that the Bible is misogynistic. Okay? Ask questions like, how does, the Bi- how does science contradict the Bible? How does the Bible contradict itself? Where is the Bible misogynistic? What is the context? So don't settle for generalities. Press in and understand what's going on. The second principle is work to understand the passage. Okay? Really understand the passage to the best of your ability. Work to understand its genre, its context, the language and the conventions of that time to which it was written. It's amazing how often this solves apparent difficulties. Okay? It's not enough to just quote a passage against the Bible. You got to understand it. You have to to really get into the life of the writer. Okay? So do the hard work. And the last thing is this. Consider the possibility that we, not the Bible, are the ones that need to be corrected. Many of us believe the Bible needs to be corrected when it's really us who needs to be corrected. I haven't heard a better, simpler, uh, a simpler illustration than this to this point. Tim Keller talks about the movie, Stepford Wives. So all you need to know about the movie is that there were were men, essentially, who found a way to turn their wives, essentially, into machines that would do whatever they said, would never contradict them. And this is what he says. It's kind of like the Bible. If you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking, how could you ever have a personal relationship with God? Is any truly personal relationship When the other person, or sorry, in any truly personal relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you. Now, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a Stepford God, a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle as in a real friendship or a real marriage. Only then will you know that you've gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition for it. When God contradicts us, us, consider the possibility that it may not be God who has the problem. Why is this good news? Why is this good news? Why isn't just this me, the pastor, upholding the patriarchy, pressing down the people? Why is this good news to you? Because it gives you a rock to stand on. And I mean that in two ways. The Bible, God's word, does not change. It's solid rock. It's a refuge to change metaphors. It's sweeter than honey. It's given for you and to you. It speaks to you. It encourages you. It's planted in your heart and grows. It does all of these things. It's like a seed that gets in there and just grows and grows and grows and brings about more and more life. It doesn't change. Your opinion changes. You know what else changes? Your performance changes. Right? Your obedience changes. But the word of God, both given and embodied in Jesus Christ, doesn't change. And so you have a rock to stand on. Our cultural and personal opinions, as well as our obedience and performance change over and over again. But our relationship with God is not based on our personal opinions. Our standing before God is not based on our obedience. Both of those things change. Our relationship with God is secured by the unchanging power and goodness of his word and the perfect work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. This is why it's good news. When you come here, you have hope. When you come here, you're, you're called away from yourself to the unchanging word of God, both in the scriptures and in Jesus Christ preached. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now asking that you would clear away all of the confusing words that came out of my mouth and that what would remain would be words of you. I pray that all of us, including me, who are tired in mind trying to listen to this, trying to make up for an understanding of a context that we don't live in and weren't in, that Lord Jesus, you would be seen as trustworthy, that your word would be seen as powerful, and Holy Spirit, that you would convict and call us to repentance. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.